Hello everyone and welcome again to The Rowdy Buddhist. I'm very lucky to be able to share this podcast from Hawaii. I've been here traveling and visiting uh, different Buddhist sites uh, to try to support the mission here in Hawaii. Uh, Today I wanted to talk about something that was very important that I I think in the West, um, based on our understanding and devotional under and belief in devotion etc uh, it's a very big aspect of buddhism that is missing i believe and yet is very pre- very present in a lot of um, cultural buddhists which is very fascinating and uh, actually inspired me to make this uh, podcast so on this topic of veneration of the buddha i want to first explain that the purpose that we have for venerating the Buddha, because as we know, the main and only traditional ceremony amongst the other ones is, and the most important in starting the path of the Buddha is, of course, the refuge ceremony. They use that word refuge very, very purposefully uh, in the sense that we take refuge um, from suffering in the path of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha as our teacher, And this, of course, is something that, with the way of teachers, and again, this is a cultural understanding, uh, but also when I say culture, I'm speaking on the culture of Buddhism. So there are many cultures in the world, such as in Japan, uh, Buddhism is is in the culture. But it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in Japan is a Buddhist or has taken refuge or is a practitioner or a follower of Buddhism. Buddhism itself uh, is a particular culture and practice, which it's important to understand that we have our traditional ways and that within those traditional ways we express, because the purpose of culture is to express um, one's uh, you know, morality, one's belief system, one's practice. And you know, more than anything in Buddhism, it's about practice. Because when we venerate the Buddha, uh, we are, of course, bringing up in our mind the concept of reverence and dedication, which I'll come to back later. But actually, the the reason for this podcast, because I, I like to have a podcast that is not just simply giving information, but something that perhaps other practitioners have wondered about or this may inspire them to see things differently that's why i like making this podcast is that when i was visiting the hilo temple here the hilo nichiren uh, buddhist temple in hilo hawaii um, it was very fascinating of course we we have the congregation there that is um, of japanese and japanese hawaiian but it was really fascinating that outside all of the doors of the temple because obviously at this time there's not a priest there so the congregation of course is maintaining the temple but outside the doors were these little baskets with full of papaya which is one of the main food staples here and they were offered in what looked like almost uh, Easter baskets and they were placed in front of all of the doors of the temple for instance they're lucky they have a uh, shichimendo there uh, which is the main mountain behind minobu-san 
they have a specific practice uh, dojo for that deity as well as the main hall and this took me back hearkened me back to when i was studying uh in more ethnic buddhist traditions and and i had a wonderful time experiencing uh, both in chinese and vietnamese etc uh, and even Theravadan traditions, um, how they venerate the Buddha. And of course, in Japan, uh, lots of people venerate the Buddha. But my observation is, of course, as someone who wishes to practice both themselves and understand Buddhism uh, wholeheartedly, and hopefully share that information with others, I pay attention to these detail. And going back to the Hilo temple uh, this no one knew who this person was and actually I, I as I was leaving the congregation member offered us uh, to be able to take them home as, a, as an offering as a gift and they didn't know who had left it but my guess would be um, usually of the Vietnamese tradition or East Asian tradition um, if there is a temple, they don't really know which kind of tradition, but that the Buddha is enshrined in there. And so therefore, that is why they are leaving offerings. Even though they're not a paid member or a member of the board or a particular member of the tradition, the concept is, is that the Buddha is there. And they are, again, that is a place of refuge. Um, no matter what language they speak or what culture or color or language you know they it didn't it doesn't matter and this brought up this concept of veneration and so i want to go a little deeper into this concept here because i believe it's a essential aspect that is missing in western buddhism and i i believe it's something that we need to change or challenge our minds with because the beginning uh, of buddhism begins with this concept of appreciating and acknowledging of course as we take refuge uh, and of course as we perform our daily practices um, that we have this mind of veneration uh, and deep reverence and dedication but actually in the United States I don't see many Westerners who have this mindset so therefore they look they don't quite understand what the meaning of Honzon, or main object of veneration. Nichiren Buddhism is very important. So, I mean, in Nichiren Buddhism, it tends to be there somewhat. So people at their home hopefully are offering flowers, uh, of course, incense, water, tea, uh, chanting and, and practicing every day. But when we see the Buddha's image, and I, I think this is, of course, in the West, we have two schools of thought of the idea of... Uh, idolatry in some forms of Christianity and of course we have some forms of Christianity that use um, figures and representation of certain saints etc but it's obviously something that Americans uh, and then that's all I can speak for myself um, that are somewhat uh, it, it's not an aspect necessarily of our culture because um, idolatry in the Western sense, of course, in the Judeo-Christian sense, is an issue uh, and has always been uh, hotly debated. And, of course, as we know in the other traditions of the book, such as Islam, 
where it is forbidden to create a, a, a statue in the likeness of man and bow down to it. So um, in Buddhism, uh, we as Buddhists, becoming Buddhists, perhaps first generation, we, we may glare over that aspect and, and of course in our mind think of it as a kind of superstition knowing that that is not a living person and even if it was a living person because in america people hold uh, their pride and uh how do you say independence mostly they worship even in the other traditions differently in the in the united states so but as a Buddhist, I think it's very essential, and this is something that I've been focusing on in my practice, um, because I, I felt as if it was something that was not yet uh, deeply enough looked into as to perhaps my aversion or my misunderstanding or my, <laughs> how, how would you say, uh, you know, being uh, not moved either way. Because, you know, we come because of the Buddha's teachings, the books, the, the, the philosophy, the practice makes sense. And we live very much theoretically in our heads. Um, and we, it's interesting, a lot of Western Buddhists, which you'll see they'll call themselves secular Buddhists, kind of are dismissing the spiritual religious practice side of it. And looking into, of course, the, the way the Buddha looks at certain truths in the, the universe, which are also quite useful. But what does it mean to become a disciple of the Buddha? So when you go into a Buddhist temple, always there'll be some honzon, as we say in Japanese Buddhism, which means the, the object of veneration, the thing that's being focused on. And usually you'll see the Buddha. In Nichiren Buddhism, you may see the mandala, which is a... Uh, a scroll of calligraphy representing the Buddha and the Buddha world. Um, people know, obviously, they think, okay, that is just a beautiful representation of enlightenment or of the founder of Buddhism. And yet, as Nichiren Buddhists, especially, and I, that's what I can speak from, uh, the concept of veneration uh, adoration, as we say in the word namu, namas, uh, to the great Lotus Sutra, the, the Sutra itself, being the title, namu being the words of veneration. We, with our whole heart, look up to the Buddha. And we're able to see that that image is the most outstanding representation of the embodiment of the physical, perfect physical attributes of the Buddha. And those attributes are what renders us an understanding of the amazing qualities of our teacher and the founder of Buddhism, Shakyamuni. We can see that in all of the aspects such as his, you know, the serenity of the statue, the composure, the peacefulness, and also, of course, those aspects are all aspects of purity. So when we, and the devotional practice is an extremely essential part of Buddhism, but again, one of those parts that is very much overlooked by Westerners because of our proclivities or our adverse, uh, uh, how do you say, um, adversity towards um, this 
devotional practice is the very basic practice that makes our mind calm and then again arouses the inspiration to follow the path laid down by the Buddha. So, you know, when we see the Buddha's statue, and, and again, in Nichiren Buddhism, the, the Honzon, why we're able to embody the um, Buddha into a physical, non-sentient object to then become an object of enlightenment is through the teachings of Myoho Rengikyo, the teachings of the great vehicle, um, the attributes of the Buddha, and the most significant that cannot be uh, put into form is that of the voice of the Buddha. So that's why in Nichiren Buddhism, and Buddhism in general, they uh, in front of the Buddha you'll see the sutras, because the sutra is the lion's roar, the voice of the Buddha. And that's, of course, how we are able to hear the words of the Buddha uh, through his teachings. Now, one, one of the things that I would direct you to is that even in the six paramitas, the first one is the idea of ofuseo, or giving. And why do we give? This is something people don't usually talk about. We, we give because of appreciation. Um, because originally, you know, most people, you would say they use giving as the idea of, okay, um, giving compassion or teachings to people. But I don't think most people, until they've developed, first of all, empathy and then the idea of jihi or Buddhist compassion, where they then wish to make an action, are not really motivated by that aspect. They're motivated by the self of um, bringing themselves out of suffering or being able to find some direction or answer for their life. So it's not uh, necessarily because of that. And then devotion means that we find value in something, so we give up something, we offer something in place of our desires. So instead of fulfilling our desires, we offer ofuse or giving of something that we've you know given our life for, such as donation, money, um, and of course, all of these are in the veneration of the Buddha, uh, not necessarily Buddhism, but of course, the, the teaching of the Buddha to preserve that, but also to venerate the teacher. And this mindset, I think, is very much missing in Western Buddhists because it, it does create a certain characteristic that is uh, found in Buddhist culture, where, for instance, even in Japan, uh, there'll be all of these small Jizo statues. And these small statues are located along the side of the road or in mountains or, you know, in very far out away places. But yet, the majority of them are all being taken care of, such as the clothing or cape uh, or hat that they put on the statue is changed every year. Flowers are being offered. And I remember climbing into the most remote regions of Japan and those small shrines were always tendered to um, and tended to. So there were flowers. And you'd wonder who either lives up here, because it doesn't look like anyone's ever been up here, is now offering these flowers and fruits and soda and that as gifts to the Buddha. Where are they? And this is because this is an integral part of Buddhist culture. And I believe by our culture, we express our teachings, which is how we are able to share Buddhism with others. It's not in philosophy. It's, it's by showing how we live our lives. 
And when we train our mind to cultivate reverence and dedication towards the Buddha, this is the most essential practice of the Dharma. This is the way that we we uh, bring about what's called the bodhicitta or the aspiration for enlightenment because we see the Buddha, we see all of the amazing attribute, attributes even though physically um, the Buddha is passed away it is embodied within both the, the essence of the objects of veneration as well as in the teachings which are combined and upheld by the Sangha so that's why even venerating the Sangha in most countries is extremely important such as donating food and don and donating fruits and and uh, medicine etc for monks and nuns and priests and this is something that allows us to go beyond ourself because sometimes Buddhism for most people is just another part of self um, either as an identity to uh, perhaps cover up not being uh, such a nice person or what they would like to be perceived as based on something that they can take on and put off um, or that they believe by simply embracing a philosophy or idea based on their likes and dislikes that they'll be able to uh, inculcate the teachings of the Buddha but actually the idea of faith which is what is found in, and Nietzsche and Shonen talks about it extensively is found through this reverence and dedication because at that point when we enter and even now I would have to say why we rely on faith I was always adverse to this concept of faith because again in the West faith is usually seen as something ridiculous and silly uh, that you'll see people who believe in in uh, all kinds of things that you you may with your modern uh, mindset consider silly uh, but we uh, have faith because we must understand we don't understand how to implement the Buddhist teachings properly through right and wrong you may sit there and say I know the difference between right and wrong but what is the essence of right or wrong in Buddhism mm -hmm. it is simply based on the Dharma and without extensive knowledge and practice of the Dharma uh, our interpretation will always fall short no matter what we call ourselves or what clothes we wear um, we will always fall short. So that's where the idea of faith comes in. And that faith is, of course, expressed through reverence and dedication. So as we know in our homes, many things people don't know, that the we venerate the Buddha in the most important part of the house. It's where the house is built around that aspect. And that is placed above a little higher than all other objects so that we can see within eye distance so we're not looking down and it is usually placed above other uh, spiritual either articles of spiritual significance and we see this and we're inspired to do this because of our connection to the Buddha that's another thing I don't think many people have a connection with the actual teacher they're kind of rogues that uh, if the Buddha was around they'd sit on the outskirts uh, but never officially join the Sangha. Just take the Buddha's information and either use it for their own edification, uh, showing their intelligence or knowledge, and or simply using it for other uh, things. So 
when we in our home it's very important that we have the butsudan or the house of the buddha where we are able to practice this every moment of our day such as i'll give you an example uh, in my home uh, every time i leave and return i bow to the buddha and light incense and chant the daimoku three times also in the morning we take care to prepare everything uh, and then to perform service in the morning and evening this is my connection of to my higher purpose uh, that of the buddha nature that is what we aspire to and that's what's found in the buddha's teaching so therefore it's a matter of priorities and those priorities show are shown through one's cultural understanding of veneration and dedication reverence and dedication so there are many traditions within buddhism such as not putting your feet towards the buddha uh, also not uh, turning your back towards it uh, also it's important not to engage simply in worldly conversation in the shrine room and that we don't just simply use the buddha as a decoration for the room because this is our teacher this is a very important aspect uh, i know most of you probably wouldn't use a picture of your loved one simply as a decoration that is a kind of shrine or appreciation to uh, connect with them spiritually and that is why we are, should be mindful uh, of how we re, you know show our reverence towards the buddha statue therefore people will touch the feet which is a tradition in ancient india uh, you know they take care to dust and clean the buddha shrine you know take turns to and again this is something that's passed generationally so as a buddhist i would hope that you would deepen your understanding about this so that you could pass it on to your children because there's obviously an issue and it's, it's fascinating when i was talking to people here people who demonstrate such virtues as you know as we're speaking of of reverence and dedication it is naturally transferred to multiple generations after that and such as in the idea of how we take care of people when they die how we respect things how we respect people that is ultimately transferred to our uh, next generations and therefore that is ultimately reflected on ourselves when we are ready to pass away how we treat our parents how we treat and venerate buddhism how we live our lives that the children will follow that so if parents are complaining that uh, my children don't come to see me my children don't uh, won't take care of me when i'm old or when i pass away that is because we are the example we have to instill that first in ourselves and then it will be instilled in others and could you imagine a world full of people who have reverence and dedication to the concept of awakening um, how could they not see another being and see the potentiality of a buddha they wouldn't be able to they would be see they would see it in everyone they wouldn't be able to discriminate against people but we overlook this aspect as perhaps we don't understand or perhaps uh, it is culturally unusual but don't be attached to your culture you are a buddhist so in buddhism becomes our culture and we have aspects that doesn't mean you give up your culture to act like you're from japan or from another culture no the aspects of how we do that 
we can inculcate because Buddhism assimilates to the culture. It doesn't dominate. And then in following generations, they will be able to practice Buddhism properly. But it depends on us, which is why Buddhism takes many hundreds of years to establish itself. Before we practice, we also offer uh, our offerings such as water and tea, lights, incense, flowers in front of the image, flowers, waters, fruits, sweets, and prepared food. Also in tradition in Japan, they offer the first cup of rice to the Buddha, offer the part of the dinner to the Buddha of each meal, and then they are used back to the dinner but at least we offer them to the Buddha because we have to take a moment and this again is of us holding up the value of enlightenment above all other things that is why I always say Buddhism is a value system that we see what is the priority system what is the priority if your priority is food you would just eat then think of the Buddha but if your priority was always the enlightenment of the Buddha, that that was the path that you, you're seeking, and that you have that true seeking mind, would you not give everything to that path? Because that was something that is constantly in your heart and mind. But when people do not venerate the, the, or have reverence and dedication towards the Buddha, means that Buddhism is not uh, in their mind yet. They cannot see the Buddha in others. So one should know that we see the Buddha as the enlightenment of the Buddha and that through the teaching is what guides us in our life. We have these wonderful expressions to express our veneration of the Buddha and our self, true self, that of Buddha nature, in order to show the gratitude and appreciation to the enlightened Buddha we offer food first that we need to nourish our bodies. Flowers and incense that pleases our eyes and nose. And these, of course, are symbolic, the symbolic way of offering that we cherish in the material world that we hold up, we give to the Buddha, to the supreme emblem of the spiritual perfection, the enlightened one. After we place these offerings at the table, we offer chanting and appreciation so with that being said what I am imploring you to do to begin this practice is to when you see the Buddha see your teacher so in a way I think we're kind of emotionally childish because in many Buddhist cultures, they have a, in Japanese Buddhist culture, they have an idea of anigatai, which means appreciation. That's why certain words are used to show a deep appreciation. It may seem like it's over the top, but no. It's appreciation. Somebody is giving something that is materially important for their survival to us. We appreciate it. Take time to appreciate uh, all things. Not just simply use them because you believe that Everything is for you, and this world is for you, and your desire and pleasure. But have true veneration. And again, this expression is seen throughout Buddhist culture, where even there was a series on cracked bowls. 
and there is a tradition within the tea ceremony that the cracked bowls and dishes are repaired with gold. So therefore, we're not a throwaway culture in Buddhism. We appreciate and take care of things. And that, of course, because those are non-sentient things, that is our expression of our value system, which then, of course, naturally transfers to other. Why, when we meet people, we use gasho? That is the idea of venerating and a, a dedication to the Buddha nature within all of us. So when we see the Buddha, before we begin service, and when I see the Buddha at all times, I feel almost an emotional rush come over my body where I remember Sukumoto Sensei would always become, that's my Buddhist teacher in Nichiren Buddhism, would always become emotional whenever he talked about the Buddhist story or Nichiren Shonen story. And I remember going up to him and saying, you know, Sensei, because I had studied martial arts and we have this idea that if I just don't feel or if I just don't become emotional, that's not Buddhism because detachment, you know, this, uh, you know, misunderstanding of emptiness and detachment. He said, actually, uh, I said, why do you get uh, emotional every time you talk about the Buddha, etc.? He said, because the Dharma naturally allows us to express emotion, which is another kind of offering that we give, the sincerity of our mind um, to our teacher when we realize how valuable, how wonderful the true Dharma is. And then that mindset of giving, ofuse, the first of the six paramitas, and then also the idea of veneration and dedication, is extended to all sentient beings. Therefore, this becomes a Buddha land. So I thank all of you. I hope you will be able to think and contemplate deeply into this concept and to be able to experience aspects of your life and express those aspects, especially those aspects that are linked with the enlightenment of the Buddha and our teacher and uh, is found in the eternal Buddha, Shakamani. So thank you very much, everyone. Namu myo horengekyo. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rowdy Buddhist. Um, sorry that I haven't been able to make a podcast in a little while. I've been doing some other things, uh, and hopefully you've been able to participate in some of them. Today I wanted to make a podcast um, that I think is very important to state, and the title I made, Is Your Buddhist Practice All in Your Head? question. So the reason why I'm making this particular statement or particular question uh, to bring it up to people is because I see and and again this is um, my experience and again as being a teacher of Buddhism the most important thing is causing beings to become awakened. That means free. And uh, that means that can only be done, of course, through the Buddhist teachings. It's not that I have any uh, special ability or magic or any of that, uh, those things to assist people. Uh, what I do have, though, is uh, the amount of time that I've been on the Buddhist path. I've dedicated my uh, life as deeply as possible to the practice and the path of the Buddha. And so therefore I feel that 
uh, as a practitioner, as a leader, as a teacher of the Dharma, I feel it my responsibility to help uh, guide people uh, beyond some of the pitfalls that I myself, both as a modern person and as a Westerner, have discovered or seen on the path. The reason why is that in the Lotus Sutra, chapter 16, Jigage, at the end it states that the purpose, the one purpose of the Buddha to come into this world and to teach enlightenment is that he wishes all sentient beings to attain enlightenment quickly and efficiently. So Buddhism just doesn't exist for Buddhism, for the, the organization of Buddhism or the religion of Buddhism. It has one simple purpose and one simple direction that is particularly laid out uh, in chapter 16 of the Lotus Sutra. That's why that particular part of the sutra is considered in Nichiren Buddhism the most essential section because it teaches us the lifespan of the Buddha as being eternal. That means always here. Even though the Buddha passed away 2,500 years ago, his essence, the teaching, is still available through the essence of the Lotus Sutra. And again, I didn't say teaching because the Lotus Sutra can be... Uh, some people have stated that the Lotus Sutra is uh, more of a uh, essence than a teaching. If you look at other teachings such as the Wisdom Sutras, etc., they have very specific teachings that they wish to pass on. But the Lotus Sutra can be extremely frustrating for people. Uh, and that was one of the issues that I experienced when I first read it. It didn't give me, uh, as I thought, direction directly. Uh, it, of course, as I state with my thinking mind, uh, that is where I got uh, befuddled or or kind of caught up. Essence was so much more difficult to grasp than someone just telling me what I needed to do. And, and this again goes back to the title, Is Buddhist Practice All in Your Head? And I think that that's the extremely important aspect of the Lotus Sutra and that it breaks this attachment uh, that people have. And when I say attachment, it doesn't mean attachment, all attachments are bad because even they were saying attachment to Buddhism, we have a, uh, we may be attached to certain things. But what I mean is that we have a false uh, sense of the teaching. So the attachment is all on our end. And that's why the Lotus Sutra is essential in breaking that false attachment, that ignorant attachment, that unhealthy attachment. And the Buddha shares with us, and I, I believe that the Lotus Sutra is the universal way of learning. What does that mean? The universal way of learning from through my uh, study and practice of Buddhism. I see, like for instance, as I stated in, in previous podcasts, People look at in the modern times, they call it Bukyo in Japan, which means the teaching of the Buddha. That also means a book. That means it's, a, it's contained in a book or in some particular reference. But originally it was called the Butsudo, which is the path of the Buddha. There are very major differences um, in the characters of both of these. One is the Kyo is a based, basically like a sutra, like a book that's bound with thread and the do is a path or michi a road that someone follows or walks 
when I say the universal way of learning, that means that all beings are able to inculcate or realize this teaching naturally. Because we tend to, and this happens, I teach martial arts, and it's interesting that even very coordinated people, when you ask them to do something because we're using our brain with our body, the disconnectedness or the, how do you say, the lapse in time can be very long. Of course, once we realize directions, we get used to a particular way or a particular person giving us directions, it can, of course, bring that time down. But if I say, please put your left hand forward, left foot, almost 100% of the time, people put the exact opposite. It's as if our mind can't hold on to the concept and, and we mirror it in the opposite way. And so as I studied Buddhism, my other question that came up, because usually Buddhism and people who are attracted to Buddhism love information. So they pride themselves on how many sutras they have read, how many commentaries they have read, uh, you know, how much information that they know about the Buddha, about Buddhism. Uh, this they almost take as a kind of superiority. And this is the main concept of learning in, in modern times. That's why Bukyo has become the, the book of the Buddha, the, the kind of uh, educational system of the Buddha rather than the path. And that came up with one of my original questions that how about people who had learning disabilities or had emotional disabilities, etc.? Uh, were they able to learn Buddhism? If Buddhism was simply information that we would study in a book and then be able to understand and comprehend Buddhism, that would, of course, leave a large amount of people out. And even though uh, you may think that you're quite literate or quite savvy and quite, um, uh, how do you say, uh, intuitive, uh, mentally flexible and, and intelligent and all of that, it doesn't seem to work with Buddhism. So one of the great pitfalls that I see people is that they believe that they, through having information, having read the sutra, being able to quote the sutra, gives them power in a way that they can uh, tell people that they're right or that they're wrong. Uh, you'll see it all over, especially in Nichiren Buddhism. Uh, some people very much pride themselves on having long uh, conversations concerning Buddhism and about their beliefs and what they believe Nichiren Shonen said and of course using Nichiren Shonen's letters and writings and instructions to push their agenda. But my big question always always is and still was that you know they haven't attained enlightenment. So again this is just another attachment that we have that we use information to think that it makes us in some way closer to the Buddha uh, because we have memorized sutras, etc. It's a famous story, of course, many of you are maybe familiar with that, you know, the uh, Buddha's cousin, Ananda, was uh, quite uh, a genius. He had a, um, what is it called, a photocopy mind, so he could be able to uh, remember everything that the Buddha said and be able to clearly and uh, definitely uh, repeat it verbatim. However, there was a, uh, they call it the, the dust, the sweeper bodhisattva, the brooms bodhisattva, where there was a person who, by all counts, seems like they had some kind of, uh, ability, uh, how do you say, challenge, 
and they couldn't read sutras. Uh, maybe even they were challenged by not having, uh, being able to uh, read or write, right? And the Buddha taught them how to clean. Now, most of us, if somebody said that to us, and that's why that's usually the first thing we learn in Buddhism, we would say, no, 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 I'm not here to clean. I'm here to learn. When I remember uh, when I was a monk, I had invited a really huge and uh, quite prestigious meditation group from Buffalo. And they have their own building and they're quite long-term, well-known meditation and insight group. And when they came to the temple, my Sifu at that time, my Chinese uh, Buddhist teacher, Tiantai Buddhism, stated, we're going to clean the temple. And I remember the head of the group stated, we did not come here to clean. We came here to have a lecture by the master. And I had realized in that moment uh, that they had missed the true lecture, the true teaching of the of Sifu, because they were just interested in gaining information. So, in this universal way of learning, we have to understand what is the vow of the Bodhisattva. The vow of the Bodhisattva is that who, in their daily life, devotes their entire uh, mind, entire body, entire spirit, even at the cost of one's life, to one's vow. That vow is the vow that we see in um, chapter 16, the vow to save all sentient beings. Even in Japan, in modern times, uh, everything is uh, based on thinking. So after the Meiji era, which would be the 1870s, everything, even in the Buddhist traditions, were changed. Buddhism at that time was you went and you studied with your Buddhist teacher together. He, ta he taught you both equally sutras as well as practices so that you could become uh, a practitioner and study and practice on your own. Uh, and then, of course, uh, continue the relationship and the, the challenging of the teacher, etc. But after that, in the modern times, because they took on a Western model, uh, even Buddhism became a university-based uh, organization. So now, in Japan, you will see pretty much all the Buddhist teachers that you met have a perhaps a master's or doctorate in Buddhism. And that's why it's really interesting when people share books with me from uh, people who are scholars of Buddhism. Uh, scholars of Buddhism, uh, they have many interesting aspects to their books and to their commentary, etc. But it's interesting that people look to them to find the answer. And I believe this is, again, that kind of whirlpool that we're stuck in of thinking that we believe we're going to think ourselves out of suffering and that Buddhism is something that we think through to understand. But in the ancient times, as we could see, they cultivated internally. Some people would say emotion. Uh, I would say emotional maturity. So people, rather than thinking about something, would understand what was taught both in the community within the uh, system that they grew up in. That's why if you look at uh, Japan, most of the things you see in Japan are based on Buddhism uh, because people inculcated it in their daily lives, which allowed them to emotionally express the path of the Buddha, such as sleeping on the floor, uh, 
such as itadakimasu, receiving food, etc. There are so many aspects, and I just keep finding them more and more. But that they became emotionally mature, which as I see these days, many Buddhists are uh, information or thinking or, how do you say, philosophically quite advanced because we have so much information. If you People don't understand that these sutras, at one time, a sutra was considered gold, that people had to cross miles and years and mountains and that to get to go to India and bring them back. Uh, go from Japan to China, Korea to Japan for a single sutra. But now we have all of them available. And this is the idea of the three jewels. You have the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. The Buddha is represented by one's teacher. Because a teacher should have a practical experience of Buddhism. Therefore becoming emotionally mature within the practice. Therefore... Uh, the immature student who will always rely on their most basic, how do you say, most uh, default type uh, characteristic, which for modern people, I believe the default for us is thinking. We always try to think ourselves out of everything. That's why we can be considered very shallow and uh, non-emotional. Uh, we seem very cold compared to when we visit some Perhaps other cultures, we may think they're very uh, colorful and very rich in emotion because they haven't yet regulated all of themselves due to opportunity or whatever to just thinking about everything. I think thinking is kind of a wealthy person's problem. And I'm not thinking about being, uh, you know, uh, common sense. No, no. I believe even common sense... The true way of common sense comes from an emotional uh, basis. That we call Buddha nature. That is a kind of intuition that we mature and manifest. It's interesting. When I, what I tried to share with others, when I met Skomoto Sensei, he did that traditional training with me. I mean, I learned that in the monastery, but also the reading sutras and that was a very essential part. And... Um, but yet I believe it was still based on emotion. But of course, I was attached to my way of, uh, how do you say, approaching Buddhism, which was a very modern Western way of thinking. Read more books. Get more information. But that actually, Skomoto Sensei taught me by emotion first. Cleaning. Practicing. Supporting others. This is the vow of the Bodhisattva. Practice and vow. We see that in the four great vows. But thinking is kind of shallow. It's considered shallow. Um, that's why you may have thought a lot about Buddhism, but maybe you haven't made any progress. You may be frustrated going, because I haven't made any progress. Or you may think you have progress, but actually uh, still the same immature character. That's interesting because you may not have uh, understood that aspect. That is why people who I have a disciple before that said, I got all the information I need. Now let me teach. But unfortunately, uh, that is a lack of maturity because it is not what you think you understand, but what you have experienced. 
thinking is a very shallow, they say, very short-sighted, because even ourselves, we can't see into the future one, two, or three years. We may think of an outcome, how we want it to be, but we always have to adjust, and that never comes out exactly as it is, because we can't even fathom within our minds uh, the idea of time, about change, all of those aspects of Buddhism. Even one hour from now, we can't really uh, imagine 100% what will happen. We can guess through thinking. But this intuition that we develop is through Buddha nature. That's why I teach uh, Gyo. Uh, and I use the mountain and nature of water and sky and everything to teach us the basic concept of being a human being. Because most people approach Buddhism, they haven't even understood what it means to be a human being. Because even when we think of human being, we think of humanity. Humanity is based on compassion, empathy. Then we grow that compassion to not just ourselves or people who are like us. We grow up that compassion to all beings, including non-sentient beings. But that that was the big question for me. How to quickly cause people to have this experience? And so I give this to you as a question that you can ask yourself. That is why when most people talk to me about Buddhism, I get many insights from people, questions from people. Long questions. But actually, I cannot uh, give a good answer. Because important is to come and train together. Even my answer will not be enough. Therefore, as a teacher, we support and allow experiential understanding to, to cause a maturity of emotional nature, growing intuition. In, uh, in Kyoji, we have a joke, we call it Spidey Sense, but we're, we're referring to Buddha Sense, Buddha Mind. And in the Shohojiso Shonichiren Shonin instead, without learning and practicing, there is no Buddhism. Now, when he said learning, learning doesn't mean information. Learning means having practice that then when we are given information, we are able to inculcate it properly, not just hoard it over others. Not just look at, because if you must have lots of information of Buddhism, I'm sure you must think other people are stupid and you are good. You understand Buddhism exactly. Well, that's the first means you cannot practice Buddhism because you are not properly learning and practicing. Because learning doesn't just mean study. Sometimes too much information is worse than just the same terrible as not enough. However, information is power. If it's not properly matched with emotional maturity, which is found in uh, austere practice and direction of a teacher, then for sure you will abuse people with Buddhism. And I think and I feel that... Uh, the, what people put themselves up as being very compassionate by stating their righteousness uh, is very childish, very simplistic, and actually immature. That is not Buddhism. 
because every person has to find their Bodhisattva vow inculcated into their life. So if you feel, why is my Buddhism not progressing? Why do I still suffer? You may be lacking in maturity. You may be lacking in the nutrition of your Buddha nature. That's the essential part. You, uh, you, can, you can eat as much as you want. I think of it as the person who eats themselves to death. Obsession about eating. So therefore they see a buffet. Eat as much as they want. Make themselves sick. Same. Thinking. If you practice Buddhism, this is not to say thinking is bad. That is not, I'm not an anti-thinking uh, person. But I'm saying in Buddhism, uh, thinking is uh, very uh, slow and uh, very inefficient for practice of Buddhism because it's very shallow and small-minded. We in Buddhism grow the bigger mind. That is the Buddha nature. Beyond all concepts of self and other. Beyond all of our hindrances. To allow us to come to a correct maturity. Wouldn't you like to be mature? Wouldn't you like to stop pretending? This is very important because life is short. You can, you can stop going the wrong way and grow yourself the proper way. This is what the Buddha's wish and purpose is. So I hope all of you uh, have understood my uh, sentiment in this question. Please ask yourself, is your Buddhist practice all in your head? If it is, don't be upset. That is the usual way we all, especially modern people, deal with things. How we deal with life. But make a change. Make a change. Begin the path of the Buddha. Begin the experiential understanding of the Buddha. Experience with your mind and body. Thank you very much. Namu myoho renge kyo.